Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Russell Earnshaw live in Jamie Taylor's kitchen. Uh, Alas, Smith and Jones style. Uh, how do you mate? You all right? Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you for coming over. Thank you for having me in your wonderful house, full of lots of um, pets and stuff. Um, mate, look, I'm really excited about this. I'm excited because I think you'll challenge my thinking on lots of stuff. You'll use lots of. You have a. I mean, you have a bookshelf that's ridiculous, quite frankly. So I'm excited to to definitely learn some more stuff. Do you want to kind of? Explain who you are, where you've, where have you come from? Oh, who am I? Um, so, uh, so I now work at the English Institute of Sport as a senior pathway scientist. Which gives you cheaper car insurance. Which gives me 500 quid a year <laughs> off my car insurance, which, uh, which was a real bonus. Uh, my previous role was, uh, was uh, head academy coach at the Leicester Tigers. Um, and amongst a few other things, coaching at uh, Loughborough Uni and do, doing a few other bits of coach development work at the moment, I... Um, my uh, my background is coach, teacher, and that's really where my heart is, is helping people learn and, and develop, I think. Cool. History teacher originally, I've heard on the grapevine. Yeah, very, very poor history teacher. PE teacher probably suits me better. And what, uh, and so what inspired you? What, what, what led to the change? So you were originally at Denston. You, you go to Denston as a history teacher mm-hmm. and run a run rugby programme, part of the rugby programme. What... What's what's been the stuff that's got you excited about sport and got you to where you are now? So I suppose I mean I went to Denson as director of rugby. It wasn't history teaching was an an aside there. In in truth, I, it, rugby took over far more of my time. Um, and during that period, I suppose I was very fortunate to be involved in a, in an excellent academy setup for three or four years prior to that. So we're talking back maybe. 2007 2008 being involved in the academy pathway at Leicester doing what was then EPDG and under 16 coaching and I suppose just as I moved through that journey I wanted more from my coaching I wanted to be working with really highly motivated players and I suppose a role came up at Leicester that I ended up taking and getting involved in and I enjoy, had a really enjoyable three, four years there. Best bits? What's the best bits of working at Leicester? Um, best bits of uh, working at Leicester, I suppose, working in an environment that really suited me down to the ground, working with some really, really exceptional people that really cared about the club, about the people there. Um, and the experience of working with people like Richard Cockerell was 
just fantastic for me as a person. He uh, really shaped some of the ethics that I have as a coach and as a person. And um, opportunities like that are probably the, the highlights of the four years. Nice. What uh, <clears throat> what would you say those if 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 Rusty was coming watch your coach or anyone was to come watch your coach, what you what would those ethics, what would those behaviours of a coach, what would they look like? What do you hope we would see? Bear in mind I've just watched back all your rugby pass episodes, which I really like, so they got the you did a behind the scenes on rugby pass with Leicester Academy. So I'd be really disappointed if you'd be able to hear me describe the behaviours that I would hold as a coach and that they would be the same every time you came to watch me. I think the starting point for me would be that I really care about the people in front of me, that I really want to help them improve. And I would then hopefully, and certainly not always, but certainly a fundamental belief of mine that you have to change what you do as a coach to meet the needs, not necessarily the wants of the people in front of you. Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, I, I, what I what I noticed was, and I think I said this to you earlier, that you were permanently dissatisfied, and I'm I'm saying that in a really positive way. So, I love the fact that you had high expectations of people, and that you know, and the challenges as as we've spoken that actually was quite a successful period for those academy lads. They won a lot of games of rugby, so actually it was probably the right in that situation, context, was quite useful to be the permanently dissatisfied person. Although I did see you laughing and smiling quite a lot. There was, um, you played some games inside and there was the Curly Whirly team and there was some, it was, it was pretty playful, but uh, um, that's what I noticed. Uh, how would you, how'd you plead? Guilty or not guilty? I think there's a few things in there. <laughs> One, was it a, sex, a successful period? And ultimately, when you're dealing with academy players and you're dealing with talent development, you don't know what success is. Cool. It's a process-based so, thing. Actually, the other thing I love that you said is we will find out in five years if this was a successful season. Because actually it's about where are people in five years' time. Mm, absolutely. And, and that's where I suppose there's an element of my dissatisfaction because there were times during that period when I didn't feel that we were meeting the process goals that we were we'd set out for ourselves as a team uh, there was a I suppose a nervousness on my part that if you and Leicester have continued to win up until this stage now you can you can have up a, until this weekend yeah up until this weekend now if you've got a, a generation of players that win every single game and don't experience the highs and lows then that's a, a warning sign for me and winning at academy level is an indicator of sorts, but it's certainly not the only success marker, and it's certainly not success for an academy. I loved what you said. You said we were trying to lose. I spent lots of time trying to lose. What would that look like? So, in that particular, in with that particular group, we travelled abroad. We played uh, Irish teams that were an age group up. We went to Claremont, we went played Claremont and Montpellier, played Leinster and Munster a year up. And those were the only those those were the only opportunities that we really had to stretch that playing group and get them to a point when they would lose games. And that's what I mean by trying to lose. I'm certainly not going out there putting players on the pitch in a position where 
we deliberately lose the game because that mitigates all the all the good stuff that come up can come about as losing because ultimately it's the players that lose and not me and if they perceive that it's me who's lost the game for them well what's the what's the point in losing the uh, and i suppose that comes back to the success in 5 years because ultimately you can't it's a real weakness of an academy program if you have players that just ride on a high all the way through and then my um, my permanent dissatisfaction is probably a reflection of my personality because yes i uh, i am always interested in what comes next and i'm very lucky that particularly during that period i had some people around me that were able to fill the gaps that i as a coach can't necessarily fill that can nudge me in a direction that goes well shall we uh, shall we have a think about this this week because um i think my uh, that is certainly a and I'm lucky now that as a, I have coaches around me that can steer, can challenge my thinking around a lot of that. Is this the right time to do this? Is this the right time to do this? Who was doing it for you then, back at Leicester? Uh, so, um, Anthony Allen was a real, uh, real help for me. Was a real, um, was one of the best coaches I've worked with, and I'm sure he'll go on to do some really good things in his coaching career. There was an SNC coach called uh, Pete Heat. I, I was thinking of Pete Heat as yeah. well. He was an, I mean, an outstanding practitioner, somebody who's really thoughtful, very well read as well. Um, so what but, did you to just let's, so what what did you learn from Ant? What did Ant add to your coaching? Um, Ant added a, I suppose, certainly really helped me from a technical tactical point of view, particularly with attack. Very very sharp thinker of the game. Uh, he was able to. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to be careful with my language, but he was very, very able to take the pee out of me as well. Yeah, you um, can say so, that word if you need to. Yeah, yeah. He, um, and that's uh, something that I personally really enjoy as well. Uh, Pete, <coughs> Pete the heat. Can I guess what Pete was adding to you? Go on. Energy, smiles. I just thought he. I, I'm thinking, like, how do you survive all day on this energy? Uh, yeah, Pete. So he was also very, just very creative with the way that he set sessions up, and the way that he engaged players in doing the same thing over and over again. So rope climbing with a with a reward at the top type stuff. Yeah, and and setting up a whole camera crew around him to make sure that he could show that he could climb the rope as well was a real highlight. Nice, that's cool. Anyone else around around the environment that you're thinking of at the moment? Yeah. So so now I'm I'm lucky that Loughborough I work with some really some great coaches who really care about what they do that but get a nice balance with not taking things too seriously as well so uh, well, I would you know name check all the coaches at, at Loughborough that I work with so Jim Henry Gerald Mullen Nathan Smith Tom Harrison again T-Dog yeah and uh, and Anthony Allen occasionally pokes his head in as well <laughs> nice what are you learning from Tom what type of stuff's Tom bring into the to the coaching team so Tom is very astute technically at scrum time. Really, really smart with the way that he approaches his scrum coaching as well. Deep thinker about uh, the cues that he offers about and how and how he coaches scrummaging. Uh, he's, I mean, beyond that as well, because I say, I say that I don't want to pigeonhole him as just scrum, but he, uh, he thinks very deeply about the whole game as well. And he certainly, I had some good conversations with him up and down a few motorways. Nice, mainly about scrums, but also the rest of the game. Mm. Uh, here's a question for you. In your Loughborough coaching team, if there was a chair, so like that chair there, and you could add any coach to it, what's, what's the coach that's missing? What's the coach that would make Loughborough even better? 
and if you know that that's a person, an actual coach, then say it. But what skills would that would that coach bring to the party? So, I uh, I wouldn't like to say there was something missing because I think the coach because that would because I think there's as a coaching group, all the people within it do a really good job, and I I don't think there's anything missing. I think that I mean effectively you're asking me. Who do what I would perceive, make it better? Who do I perceive as the best coach in the world who'd be able to influence the coaching group? Uh, possibly. Yeah, so my, I, I would, I, my, my, I would suggest that I'd really like to coach with Eddie Jones. Nice. We'll have I a think, chat with Eddie. We'll see if we can get it done. Uh, I think. Why? That, I think there's somebody there who's very smart, who's, who reflects deeply about the game, and manages in the individual journeys of players very cleverly nice outside of that so i know you're a well-read man you're a well-connected man and definitely want to move on to your coach development stuff in a second who else has influenced you so you're gonna you could would have some big names i'm sure they're gonna come up now and and why um big names is in long names uh, no just as so, in people that so i think I, are influencing so, coaching so, generally uh, so I, i'd always like to name check a guy called chris johnson who uh, you played with CJ. Yes, CJ. Nice. Who, uh, so for me, as a, so was a, my coach at school. And really. I'm at, struggling to work that one out from yeah, an age point of view. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, uh, I suppose he helped me at a time when I was quite an angry young man and gave me, uh, gave me a lot of the ethics and the morals that I hold now. So I'm forever indebted wow. for the, uh, the role modelling that he gave me at a uh, difficult time. Nice, yeah, that's cool. And actually, I, I'm also aware that you've definitely repaid that with some people that I know that you've coached in, either at Leicester or Denston. So that's that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, well, I suppose you try your best, and ultimately, there's going to be lots of players that don't think that way as well. So, and you can only do what you can do, can't you? Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about coach development. So obviously in your role at Leicester, you were like academy coach development officer. So a part of your role would have been to to support coaches in the in the, in the academy and beyond. Uh, currently you are, I mean, your job title is bamboozling me. However, you are, although helping with the car insurance, uh, you are uh, influencing practitioners within Olympic sports. Some of them are coaches, some of them, I guess, are uh, might call themselves coaches I don't know but they might call themselves analysts and stuff like that um, what, do you, what is it that you're doing that you're most proud of? So I suppose it, ultimately I go back to where I started which is the, the real buzz that I get is helping people get better at what they do now the moments that I'm most proud of are those moments when you feel like you've had an impact on somebody and you feel like you've helped them get better and move towards the direction they want to go. So in my current role, we so my, my effectively most of my work is working with people beyond just coaches, but predominantly coaches, and helping groups of people move towards and do what they say they're intending to do. Now that's, um, I suppose it's a long way around of saying, Yes, I suppose it's coach development, but it's it's more than that. It's it's working with a whole group of people and not just an individual. Nice. So um, let's talk about both of those aspects then. So from an individual point of view, what type of stuff are you doing? What's, what's having an impact from a 
working as a collective, what, what have you found that's been helpful for people as well? Broad question. So I would say that it's very difficult to generalise. Cool. I think it's very, very difficult to say, I am doing this and therefore this is having impact because ultimately we could, I could deploy the same strategy on two days with the same person. There could be very different outcomes. I agree with you. So uh, I think it's very difficult for me to say, right, well, this is, this is what's having impact because um, it's more than that. I think it's the decision-making process that goes into the, the strategies that you deploy as a, as, a t- as a coach, as a teacher, as a coach developer that really matter. Uh, and I would hope that that decision-making process is the bit that is making the impact rather than any particular strategy on its own. Cool. Give me some examples. So give me some uh, real-life examples that are um, where you've noticed that it's, it's helped some people get better. Give me some stories. Okay. Give me some stories. Um, so clearly, because the work that I do is with individuals, I'm not going to name, name names. So, That's fine. Um, working with a coach a few weeks ago, planned out based on uh, his long-term needs there's, there's an area of his his development that i've been working with him on plan to arrive at this session to observe particularly for him it's about it's the strategy he uses to problem set for the athletes i'm trying my best not to be specific Get in trouble that he works with now on this occasion when i arrive my plans are blown out the window because he's just had a major fallout within the organisation that he works for. I'm choosing my <laughs> words very, very carefully. Uh, so, and I, I suppose I'd be at pains to point out here this isn't this isn't connected to my the work I do in the, in the daytime because otherwise you're going to figure out who. Uh, I then sit down with him, chat to him. He's in no position whatsoever to be receiving help based on this. So. I then need to change what I offer. He doesn't need the pedagogical support that I was planning on delivering. He needs the emotional support. He needs to chat through and help make sense of the situation that he's in that's, that has caused him some emotional disturbance. Cool. <clears throat> Actually, I know we talked about it earlier, but the RAF, I was there the other day, and that would be one thing they would do every single time. Oh, is someone mentally ready to get in that plane? and? And run the session. Actually, if not, then perhaps our our support would would change direction slightly. Um, what common what common areas are you noticing in coach development? The needs of uh, the people that you're seeing. Are you noticing some trends, some common trends um, <clears throat> that you think would be useful to to talk about? So, I wouldn't necessarily talk about the people. Because I think that you, I see all sorts of very different needs across lots of different sports. And ultimately, the way that coaching is, is delivered is very culturally mediated. In, so it's very different from one sport to another. I think that coach development or coach developers as a profession are really, really lacking in knowledge of pedagogy, in... Um, rigor in any rigor really i think that there is too much practice that goes on people arrive and just go right well i think this so i'll give you this 
without really critically considering or asking why are you doing this and having being able to deploy a broad range of different things that could help a person. Uh, we've just been through the process of pulling together a position statement on, on particularly on talent development coaching and the big, uh, one of the big outcomes of that is that we're calling for a greater focus on equipping people pedagogically with knowledge. And how and how does and what does that look like? So that's effectively so it's a science <coughs> science of teaching and learning. I agree with you. I know what it is, but in terms of and how how are you planning on doing that? What's the well? How am I planning on doing that? Is a bit different to how I think the whole industry needs to shift. And I think that we need to be deploying evidence based practice in everything that we do, because if we don't deploy evidence based practice, we're just pulling things out of thin air. And I think for coaching, um, and for goodness knows how many years people have been calling for the development of coaching as a profession, and yet we haven't been able to, to, to do that. And I suppose part of my current interest is that coach developers become a profession, as in there is a barrier to entry, there is a level of expertise required to do this job, rather than put coach developer on your, on your back and, and you're in there. And you're off. I um. So, w I think the barrier to entry is important. I think you need to show that you have a level of knowledge, and I think that you need to show that, uh, amongst other things, I'm just focusing on that pedagogical side. But if I look at say the barriers to entry across all the other professions that within the organisation I now work <coughs> with, psychology, biomech. Uh, physiology it's very difficult for a coaching co it's very difficult for a coach to interact with people like that because they're operating from such a, a, a higher bar because most of the people that work in my organization that influence coaches are PhDs yeah there's a level of critical thought and a level of analysis that is built into their training to get them to the point where they are that a coach either at the moment, a coach struggles to interact with. Now, that, at that point, they either go, right, this is brilliant, Let's, I'll lap it all up, I'll bring in here, 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 without the critical thinking that's necessary to ultimately identify where we go. Or, and I don't like, I don't like holding an either-or position, because, but I, ho I hope you get the point I'm trying to make, that they just dismiss all of it. That's science, it's, it's art. Don't worry about that. I'm an artist, they're scientists, I know what I'm doing. And I think we have to find a midpoint. Same with coach, coach developers, we need to find a midpoint where coaches and coach developers can, act, can be critical thinkers and act on different sources of information in different ways. There, isn't, there aren't many barriers to entry to coaching. No. Ex-player, 100 caps. Um, is interesting because this is some stuff we're talking about once again at the RAF but they said our, our, um, our world is a meritocracy I thought you know that's pretty cool and actually mm. that wouldn't necessarily always be the case and um, by the way I do so I, I fundamentally believe there is an enormous benefit to having that experience of course there is so I'm uh, so from, like, let's say I don't know you take a 100 cap test international compared to me as a coach well I'm not 100 ca uh, test cap international there is a massive bank of yeah. experience there that is going to enormously support somebody as a coach and not just reputationally. 
However, I think that needs to be married up with something, and the same from for same me. for you, yeah. yeah. And it's and, it, and 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 it's probably easier, not easier, but it's they could access that knowledge. It's you're never going to be a hundred cap international, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's the person sat in the I chair. can still dream though, can't I? <laughs> yeah. so at one stage, did you think you were going to be a 100 cap international? Uh, probably around about the age of 12 and a half, and then I gave up. Did you? No, I didn't give up. <clears throat> I um, uh, That showed me as a coach is my failure as a player as well. Same as me. Very, in- very intense, very, uh, very, very driven. Nice. And um, there came a point when I realised that, uh, along with a couple of quite serious shoulder injuries, that I was going to be a better coach than I was a player. Interesting. Well, what age was that? Uh, 20, probably around 28. Right. Amazing. Well, that you was the point where I... You kept going for a while before you gave yeah, up. I think, but that's also when I couldn't get any medical insurance to cover my shoulders. So. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, what about... So I, I, I want to delve into it a bit more, so let's have a look. So one of the things I know that you're uh, passionate about is... is thinking critically about is practice design so what are you noticing when you you know when you're out and about what are you and and where do you think it needs to get to as an example and then let's let's pick up on a bit of the psychosocial type stuff in a bit as well so uh, it's not just when I'm out noticing it's it's just broadly that when we think about practice design I see too much of well it's a game or it's a drill and I don't get people, don't see people with that pedagogical knowledge to be able to differentiate different practice forms and understand why you might use. I love your language. I love it. Yeah. Uh, why you might use a, a, a given practice design. So uh, one of the things that I suppose that we chatted about previously is well, what's block block practice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I see blocks practice being confused with the idea of a drill. Um, or that you end up with block practice and random practice at either end of a of a of a line. They're two different things. When in reality, it's more of a continuum. I also don't hear much about the difference between massed practice and variable practice. So, massed practice, repeating the same thing in the same way, over and over and over again. Now, what we know about that is that it's very likely to build confidence. It's going to help. It's particularly useful for a beginner. So as somebody is learning how to do something, now we can choose whatever mechanism we like, and I'm deliberately avoiding the idea that this is the reason why this happens. Because, but ultimately, no matter what position you take, that that is, it, we know that it will build somebody's confidence, but it won't necessarily transfer into practice. Yeah. The more variable something is, so the more different ways you might do it and the more different slight, slight variations in the way you perform a skill, the more likely it is to transfer. So you've got a continuum of mass to variable. <coughs> you've then got a continuum of blocks. I'm learning loads of new words. This is exciting. Blocked to random, <coughs> which is blocked. Is, you, the more blocked something is, the more you're repeating the same skill. So, But that could be done very variably. And random is different combinations of the same uh, or different combinations of different skills and what do we know about the game we know that it's relatively relatively random but ultimately if there's certain skills as a as a player you're going to perform more than others so type five forwards are unlikely to be kicking the ball that often yeah possibly 
Um, they may miss opportunities to kick. They might do, but they're still unlikely to be kicking the ball. Let's say compared yeah, well, to passing. Well, why do you think they're so? Let's. Why do you think they're less likely to? I think that they are put in positions on the pitch that are more time bound. That they are in some environments. So sometimes they are actually. Sometimes they're actually in spaces where actually they have a lot of time to observe the game. So if they're, for example, stood a little bit towards an edge, let's say, then they might have more time to scan and see stuff. And maybe the fact that, they've, that they're have that they aware of it might mean they share the information. But I, I'm with mm. you. I, I yeah. do understand that if I look around the, the current game as it looks, especially in, in England, there aren't that many props kicking the ball. And when they do, people act pretty surprised. Mm. So, and there's a... Clearly, they have a finite amount of time to practice stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, if they spend you know, 90% of their time practicing kicking, then that would be, quite frankly, ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I actually also think one of our limitations around kicking practices, it is, it rarely looks like the game. So, lots of kicking practice, even if it's in a, in a different space with different time stuff is often people often just standing still without that much pressure and there you reference another really important practice design principle which is specificity yeah so we know that if something's highly random highly variable and very and holds a great deal of specificity it looks like the game it's more likely to transfer but here's the problem that you can't necessarily you cannot generate specificity in rugby training like you can in other sports because of the contact risk yeah and because of the physical loading. And ultimately, if you look at a game, how often does somebody get to perform a given skill? The It's not that often. So if you want to improve a skill, we know that you need to repeat it. But the desire should be that you get something to the point where they're repeating a given skill in a relatively highly variable manner. Yeah. Sounds complicated, this coaching thing, doesn't it? Because it is. <laughs> <laughs> and what and what else? So what else are you thinking about when you uh, when we're starting to talk about practice design? What other stuff do you think would be useful for coaches to hear about? Uh, so I would so I'd urge all coaches to go and understand why they would use something. So go back and think about, and also go and read about why you would use a, a given practice form. And again, I'd probably think about well, how much information is there out there to support coaches. In on let's say blogs as a, as a format, and I don't think there really is. I yeah, understanding what's the benefit of what's the, and then what's the cost of as well. So yeah, so to that, where would you mate? You're a man with a lot of books on your shelf, and I've just borrowed two off you. Um, practical sports coaching and performance psychology, a practitioner's guide. I've been told not to lose either because they're very expensive. Um, any books on there that you think in that this would be quite a Here's a good recommendation. So I, would, I, would, I would definitely go for both of those two. Uh, yeah. There's also a book uh, by Collins and McNamara called Talent Development and Practitioner's Guide that yeah. has some really, really good ideas, particularly towards the back about practice design. Uh, Danny Newcomb, are you thinking Danny Newcomb as well? I think Danny's got some really solid ideas from um, from a constraints-led um, view of the world. View of the world. Um, uh, I suppose my my standing would be that I would probably move, look at things from a more, uh, I suppose, a co- more cognitive point of view. Uh, 
and ultimately look to try and deploy some mixed methods. I also think there's some really good research out there that we can um, I can chuck over some ideas if you want to put some notes on the but there and a lot of that is freely available if you're on the research gate. So I, which I'm not, unfortunately. I'm mean, they use really long words. Re, what you mean? Like, like just long words, you know, they're like, I don't know, like coaching. Um, well, hang on, didn't you go to, you went to Cambridge? Yeah, yeah. Economics, too, too long for you, aren't they? Economics, economics. Tell me about the cognitive stuff. So once again, I think, and we're, we're going to get on to some of the other stuff in a second, but one of the things I notice around coaching, and I, and I, and I love your language because we're often going, it's this or this. Um, and, and possibly without understanding, but I see a, I see a strong debate on Twitter that that often confuses me that it's it's cognitive or it's constraints and they're completely two separate things and they don't touch each other and it's one or the other. I mean, what are your thoughts around that? So I think that, and this is I suppose this is where we could get go off on a bit of a tangent, but I think it's important you understand the the position that you hold and where you're coming from. So that what you do as a person or as a coach is is internally consistent. Yeah. Now the fancy word for that is you've got a coherent epistemology. You know. Nice. You know. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. Stop. Sorry. I sorry. It. I've just been sick. Of <laughs> I like it. But what that means is that you are internally consistent. You can start making decisions on the basis and of you know why you're using something. The, and I think that. You know, we we all hold different views of the world around different things, but ultimately, if you know why you're doing something, you're far more likely to be effective with it, because if you don't uh, consider the mecha- the mechanism that sits behind what you're doing, then why are you doing it? Yeah. Let's talk about cognitive stuff. Well, what? Do, where are you on it? What are you thinking about when you see those debates? So. I know you did a tweet the other day and there was a response and I was a little bit confused by it. And so what's your internal epistemology saying? Um, so I, I put up a tweet, uh, I tweeted a quote by John Dewey that it's uh, not experience that, I'm going to have to paraphrase here, I'm sorry. The book that's also here, experience, John Dewey, experience and education. Uh, that it's not experience that shapes a man, it's somebody's that it's their reflection on it. I'm so, I've butchered the quote. I'm sorry. Um, and I, the, I think we get the idea that actually you need to be. It's not just that something happened. It's actually that we reflect upon that. Yeah, and uh, I suppose uh, just I'm treading carefully here because I don't want to misrepresent a, a constraint-based view or the view of the person who who rightly challenged me. And I think I also a big fan of the fact that Twitter can be a really useful vehicle for people challenging each other and engaging in discussions so yeah the uh, the idea that motor skills are different as in movement skills are different that you don't think about them you do them now i so i um i would probably hold a slightly different position and again i don't want to misrepresent the views of the person who put it up because twitter is a difficult place to have a nuanced conversation as well in 280 character limit yeah now, my view would be that if I think, ultimately, when I'm performing at the very highest level, if I'm playing in a World Cup final, I don't want to be thinking about how I pass the ball. I don't want to be thinking about how I catch the ball. I want my I want my attention to be elsewhere. But it, to me, it doesn't necessarily mean that in the acquisition of a skill, that thinking about it isn't useful. 
I um, and and ultimately the where you direct somebody's attentional focus is a really important part of coaching. Yeah. And it shapes coaching practice because if you are if you are coming from a more cognitive point of view, then you will be help engage help um, engaging athletes players in thinking about things. And where you, when, for example, when you ask a question, you are directing somebody's attention, you're encouraging them to think about a given thing. You're setting the boundaries. And that's, to me, an important skill of coaching practice, and it's an important position to be coming from. I've got the same internal epistemology as you, then, if that makes sense. No, I haven't got the same one as you, but I, I, would, I would share those sentiments. I want to talk about, actually, I'm going to get to Tampany Trauma. I want to talk about the paper you did. So you, actually your paper was about shouldn't he, wouldn't he, couldn't he? Is that mm. right? Have I got it right? Yeah. So you looked at players uh, like me and you who uh, possibly <laughs> could have made it, whatever made it means, um, and, and looked at the reasons that people didn't possibly fulfil their potential. I don't know if that's the right phrase. Um, what were your findings? What stuff did you discover? And what, I guess, and tied in with that would be, and what are the implications for coaching? So what did you notice about, could be different about coaching to possibly help support people better? So I think the, the, the important distinction is they weren't necessarily people like you and I. They were people who were very high early performers. They showed yeah, a high there. level of yeah. ability. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. just making that <laughs> Can we just so, imagine that for a while, that there was me and you? I'm going to tell myself a nice story that I, I uh, if only, I, uh, <laughs> effectively, you're looking at a cohort of players in rugby and football, a total of 60, who showed very high early promise, but ultimately didn't fulfil where, um, where, <clears throat> where the coaches originally perceived they would go. Uh, they were players at the highest level of both sports, so they are... Um, just try, choosing my words carefully so I don't break confidence, that they were either Premiership football or Premier League football or Premiership rugby. Yeah. Now, the results of that were that players, predominant factor in players falling away were a lack of mental skills. Amongst others, there were also organisational problems, so academies not structuring their pathway effectively enough. Um, a major factor was... Uh, j- a jump in challenge level as well so that now that's either very low to very high or very high to bumbling along so the effectively the implications of the coaches are that the deliberate 12 this the position that i would take and that the research research cohort i work with would take is the deliberate teaching of mental skills, mental characteristics through a pathway is really important and that the testing of those skills forms a critical part in somebody's journey and that we have to look beyond the idea that it's a session by session thing or it's a performance by performance thing. We've got to think a lot more long term with how we plan and how we shape somebody's experience of a sport. Could you bring to life ways that you did that at Leicester. So some ideas that people might be able to go, okay, I want to go and explore that idea a little bit more. I won't give any specifics, I think it would just be too obvious who the people are. Okay. 
but let's say you have a, a very high early achieving player of which there are always a couple of them so the embedding of psychological uh, psychological skill training uh, or as some people I work with might, might call it a psychologically informed environment that we move through a, a pathway that encourages the development of these skills now that, let's take that to be um, commitment we want to be able to reinforce somebody's commitment where we can we want to offer somebody the role models that are also committed to their, their individual development now that might mean that you if you're working with a DPP player or a somewhere between a DPP and Academy, whatever anybody chooses to call it, that you bring Academy players to talk about their experiences or you bring them to go and train next to the Academy in the gym, that they see how does an Academy player behave, how does an, what's an Academy player's day like, you're role modelling, you're showing somebody this is where I want to be and this is where I want to go. When you're selecting people, that you pick very carefully because of everything that we know about developing uh, developing brains that they're far more likely to copy their peers than they are anything else so if you have a large group of people who are not displaying relative uh, characteristics that are going to support somebody in the long term and you put them all together then you're unlikely to be able to make significant change uh, you then attempt to put relevant roadblocks in the way. And if we go back to the conversation we were having at the start about what the success of Academy Pathway is something you judge down the line and why winning was a concern was that if you've got a couple of early high achievers in, in that particular group who went through an Academy journey without having lost. And the difficult bit in rugby is it's very difficult to play people up and down or change their challenge level. But even then, if for example, you're a really high achieving 16 year old and you get to play in the under 18 academy. Is that a challenge? Or is it, look at me, I'm, I'm even, even greater than I thought I was. It's another positive moment. But however, if you play up and then get dropped, that might be a really negative moment. That might be a moment that disturbs you emotionally and helps, you pre and helps both prepare you for what will come, as long as you've got those relevant coping skills beforehand. And the, ability, and the skills to reflect on what's happened and the idea of realistic performance evaluation which helps you understand I have played poorly then self-regulatory stuff that helps support well what do I do next so I'm just trying to summarise some stuff I was just writing some notes um, you would in your dream situation you have would have psychological skills embedded in the pathway uh, that would involve um, individualized longitudinal view of supporting of supporting people really so actually a certain amount of challenges that are intentionally along the way with some support around understanding and I know you guys will talk about PCDs as an example and that's some of the language you've taken uh, and that would form for me because once again if you look on your research actually it's been the limiting factor in lots of situations that would be probably top of your to-do list and other stuff would sit around that i think that it'd be very high on the to-do list uh, in terms of the individual and longitudinal side yes that's the absolute ideal that it's 
highly individualized. However, you will know that in the nature of a talent pathway, that gets very difficult. Yeah. And also, unless, unless you were a football academy where resources are a plenty and there's relatively low numbers, yeah. in a rugby academy, let's say sixteen to eighteen rugby academy, I think it's then achievable. If you're trying to keep as many people engaged for as long as possible prior to that, I think it gets very hard. And you would, as a result, often end up doing it broader. And I guess the other big thing that's important here is, and probably ties in a little bit with your work with the EI around team stuff is, well, if there's lots of significant people around this player person then actually people being informed and on the same page will be critical as well yeah and that ties into what's coming next the, the next the next few papers is that let's say you've got a coaching team somebody's just suffered a big disappointment now what if we have a clear shared understanding of why that's happened and how we're going to shape that then we end up being able to be coherent about it but ultimately if, if you've just suffered a big disappointment as a player and the physio comes along and just puts an arm on your shoulder and says, oh, don't worry, you know, you'll play better next time. You can mitigate all of the designed intent there. Yeah. Why is, it, why is that person being dropped? It's your daughter falling over in the playground. Yeah. And as we discussed earlier, a four-page accident report, <laughs> yeah. my daughter falling over probably isn't, is pretty inappropriate yeah. preparation for the future. The other thing that I'd say is that it's not just about the support. It's about how you equip somebody beforehand because you can't just chuck things at people and, yeah. and then go, what well, will support you. And the word support is almost this, this vague idea that if I support you, well, what am I doing? What are my actions? And I suppose the, the interesting way that a lot of lit- educational literature has, has put it is as, like, as a fine balance between being a support and an arm around the shoulder and somebody who balances the nature of that and and, what, and, and helps you focus forward rather than just going here, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, I've been, I was thinking about that the other day, and once again, I don't think support is always arm around the mm. shoulder, but I would get, as, as I'm sure you would, you would have uh, players who you used to coach call you and try and make sense of some stuff, uh, and I'm always mindful of, well, you know, what's going on in that other world, and I would tend to want to go and, and yeah, we're trying to want to get them to think forward about and what are you and what are you doing about it? What are you going to do about it? Um, but yeah, it's an interesting thing because the reality is there'll be lots of players that you know exist in um, sporting environments that would speak to lots and lots of different people, mm. and so actually it can be quite confusing for for the player, quite frankly. And look, I think the uh, sort of paper that we're just uh, just about to submit tracked some rugby league players over their transition to professional game and they were looking at uh, sort of the accumulation of these people because ultimately if somebody gets more successful there are more people that want to influence somebody so by the end of and rugby league is a far cleaner pathway than rugby union by the end of that journey they've got 24 25 different people offering feedback to them at a given time as they transition into the first team and into the super league in uh, in rugby union, that number is higher. Yeah, so I did one of the slides that shows Tom Marshall at Falcons, and Tom's like got his coaches around him. He's got his teachers. His teenage back when it was done, his teen teenage friends around him. He's eligible for England. He's eligible for Scotland. He's got first team coaches as he's starting to navigate a transition. So, uh, was that was the piece of rugby league partly also around looking at? 
transitions as well because that's where I think it often gets quite muddied. People are, you know, just just not speaking to each other enough, quite frankly. Hey, what do you have to find out? <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, let's talk Tampney's trauma. So that was obviously one of... That's been quite an um, impactful piece of work in coaching. Um, uh, I think it's probably trying to summarise some of the stuff we've just spoken about, hopefully. Um, what, what, I mean, what's your take on, on, on that paper and, and the impact it's had? And, yeah, and, and what, what are implications for coaches again? So I think uh, fundamentally the idea is really robust, really solid, and it's I think it's been the the uh, imp- empirically validated a number of times. I think it's a foundational piece of work for coaches in helping them understand what how you individualise a given person's learning journey, and it's the sort of idea that's been around in educational literature, psychology for. A, a long time there's the idea that in psychology that if you want to in- in elicit change then you need some big disturbance of some sort because without that you, you uh, I suppose there's no no motivation to make a change and we've got a, uh, I suppose that to me the the idea is that the it's about an emotional disturbance now in a talent pathway the meaning that you have for something is really important now Ultimately, we're talking about people who are highly motivated to move towards a given end, whether that's a player in academy or an athlete in a talent pathway in a sport. So the level of emotional disruption that you might get... Disruption, that's what I like. I like that word. Well, the level of emotional disruption that you might get from a given incident can be highly traumatic for somebody. Now, the benefit of that, if it's shaped in an appropriate manner, can be really profound. But ultimately, the problem is if you, if you put somebody in that situation without the skills with which we'd be able to deal with it, manage it, learn from it, then you're putting somebody at risk. Talk me through that. So I don't want you to pick out any names or stuff, but go, look, here's, a, here's an example of an intentional provocation, disruption, that w- and, and, and here might be some stuff that we do in advance, and this might be some of the stuff we do to, to continue to move it forward. Because once again, I mean, we're not always just talking about one event, are we? We're, we're hopefully thinking more longitudinally. Give me some examples, or an example. So, again, I, I'll, um, I'll talk a little bit more hypothetically than real, real life. life. Yeah. So... Uh, Let's say you've got a player who's doing really well, progressing really nicely, it's all been really easy, but has technical deficiencies around a given area of their game that we know will limit them in the long term. Let's yep. say... Proper can't kick. I'm joking, I'm joking. Or a fly-half who can't tackle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, likely. <laughs> so you have a fly-half who can't tackle and displays very low motivational orientation towards improving this given skill. I'm thinking of a few players. Yeah. <laughs> but ultimately, they, and I think I'm sure we can think of a number of players where people have reflected that that was a pathway-based deficiency and that things weren't done about that. So, <clears throat> do we understand where this person is at? Have we considered... That's your dog drinking, Sorry, yeah. That's my, do- that's my dog drinking and that's me <laughs> waving my hands on the table because everybody can hear me, see me. <laughs> 
Are you going to get enough of it? <laughs> so, you have... Oh, it's a noisy drinker, your dog. I know. <laughs> You're really disrupting the flow. Here, <laughs> so you have a... Uh, so you understand where somebody is based on their coping resources. Have they... Where are they in their life? Is it the middle of an exam period? If it's the middle of an exam period, probably a bad idea to jump yep. even more at somebody. You prepare them. Think about well, this is the, this is this is what we're thinking. Perhaps could if you want to. You then drop them from a team, and these are the reasons why. This is really clear, and this is what we need to see from you. So you get your emotional disruption. You get the negative emotion that comes from that type of incident. You then have a group of people that need you need to communicate with to say, look, this is the reason we've done this and this is the reason for the long term. Because there are so many factors that can mitigate that negative emotion. And what we know about negative emotion, or at least what we, what we appear to know based on the literature, is that it can lead to more detailed reflection about things rather than global positivity. And it can motivate action. And that's, again, something that sits in literature for God only knows how long since, uh, and sits in philosophy for eons as well they then hopefully are provoked to move towards a given end they will seek to mo- they'll, they'll hopefully motivate themselves to improve a given aspect of their game and in doing so become used to the rocky road that they further reinforce the coping skills they have and they can move on to what comes next because we know fundamentally <coughs> that there are a tiny, tiny number of people who move all the way through this journey without experiencing significant difficulty. And therefore, the emotional disruption, the traumatic experiences that lead you to the very top of a, of a profession. Yeah, I would, and I would imagine that as trauma is in the eye of the beholder, then it'd be pretty tricky to go through life without much trauma, really. Yeah, completely. And that's certainly what is being... So the, we, we started the day by having a chat about, I suppose, the idea of the mental health epidemic amongst young people now. And that's certainly something that sits in literature as a potential causative factor of that, in that the road is being smoothed for young people all the way through. And it's the reason why my daughter gets a four-page accident report. It's why her, her life in the playground is over-managed by teachers and so on. And where do you... Um... Where do you, I mean, where have you seen this done well? So have you seen any places that are starting to kind of really embed this stuff and, and, and it be, it's just, this is just how things are done around here? It's really difficult. I, I, I don't particularly like name-checking people to say they're doing it really well. They're do, or, because ultimately what, what, what that means is there are other people who aren't doing it well. And that make and and also it means that there are people that I work with who I don't mention, yeah, who aren't you. doing it well. I think there are a couple of so I, my my external impression is that this is something Gloucester do pretty well, or uh, and something that uh, a guy like Kev Mannion really understands and and works really well with. Uh, I think there are a couple of football academies that are using this really effectively as well. And it's an environment where, in football, is particularly prevalent because of the nature of the industry that sits around young people in a, in football academies. I know, scary, isn't it? 
but in in a lot of cases it's managed really well yeah and it leaves them with a not just a more likely chance of being able to come through and become a professional footballer but also helps them cope with the real world the rest of their life yeah yeah true story what where would you recommend people go and look up this type of stuff or, or any other stuff for that matter so any other kind of uh, name checks reading checks checks of anything that you think would be useful for coaches so i would keep referring back to literature and a lot of it is very readable um i i, I completely understand i that. could read the conclusion Problem is, if you read the conclusion, Ouch. you just teed me up there, didn't you? If you read the conclusion, you miss the big idea. I know, I know. If you read the abstract, well, you miss the point. You you also need the critical thinking that sits around it. And there are God knows how many papers out there that have a uh, have a very hefty abstract, but without the evidence to support what's in the abstract. Yeah. I um, and but I, I would keep encouraging people to try and dig into that world, because ultimately, if you're going to learn, grow, and improve, you need to apply. A lot of thinking towards something it can't just be a 10 minute podcast it can't just be a, a 30 second clip on youtube if you genuinely want to understand and get better you need to devote so what do you hope this inspires people to go and look at give me two or three papers uh, so i'd go back to the original talent needs trauma paper to understand this and so big dc big dc uh, there's a paper done by jen savage uh 2017 again i forget the title that's well worth another look that that looked at this on a longitudinal basis with a number of uh, with a number of athletes from different sports i think that some of the data across relative age effect is really worth considering here because i think that the idea of a uh, an underdog those born later in the year are far more likely to come through is now becoming pretty universally held idea yeah so i, I would have a, go and have a look at that because that's certainly, from my point of view, is interesting evidence to support the, the talent needs trauma hypothesis yeah. and the idea of the need for a rocky road. And it would also probably lead us to consider that why are so many um, earlier born people dropping out of talent pathways yeah. as a potential source of concern, really, for, the, for what we do. Uh, and then beyond that, I'd go and dig into some educational literature as well. As I think there's some really good sources around and about. I'd go and, if you really fancy it, go and look, read some John Dewey. If you really fancy it, and a bit of David Deuster, Deuce, 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 Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, off your bookshelf, top two, top two. Uh, you've already had my top two. I know, what's the next two that's left? Uh, <clears throat> I would go... The one that's that's so what, 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 what do you want to be? What are you interested in? The one that's screaming to me is the art of the story. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Um, you I, don't like that one. I'd go read some philosophy. If uh, you can go in some Stoic philosophy, maybe some Seneca, some Marcus Aurelius. Bit of Sun Tzu, the art of war. Yeah, probably not that one actually, though. To be honest, two books. That I'd go and look at so there's some some decent books up there about reflective practice as well, which I I enjoy and have influenced me. Did you enjoy the David Did our book? What if everything we knew about education was wrong? Yeah, that's actually a really good. That's a, a great good starting point. Really, yeah. particularly because it's it's very readable. People like me can read books like that. But it's also highly critical of a lot of commonly held ideas. Yeah. And I, I think that the, the critical lens that that's written in is would be a really useful thing for coaches and coach developers. Mate, 
It's been a pleasure. What I'm, uh, where can people find you? Where can they get a hold of you? You used to have a website. I was on the way up. I was thinking, remember, you used to have like a website where you used to... All does it still exist? All nonsense. gone. Yeah. All gone, yeah. Um, I am on Twitter at J-A-T Taylor. And I suppose available by email if you want on jamie at l&aperformance.co.uk. Nice, cool. I did some one worders. I just wanted to see what you'd say. Uh, Lester. <clears throat> uh, the first word that came to mind was home. EIS. Really enjoyable. Coaching. Purpose. Family. Oh, I've gone soft. Love. Oh, my. It's a cool family, by the way. Enjoyed fist bumps. Uh, Jack Moran. Good bloke. Dave Collins. Uh, fundamental figure in my life. That's more than one. Word. Oh, that's a lot of words. I'm surprised you haven't name checked him so far. I have. Oh, yeah, not to the extent of. Yeah, yeah, not to the extent of. I do. I do know he's obviously been <clears throat> really impactful for you. Um, rugby. Uh, meaning. Football. interesting high five <laughs> mate thanks so much i've loved it over and out